Let's pray together. Lord, that is the desire of our hearts. We want to bless your name, your holy name. And some days that's easier than others, and we want to be able to say like Job, whether you give or take away, your name is to be blessed. So, Lord, we need grace for that. We need grace to hear and follow your word this morning. Um, And so I pray you would draw near and work in our hearts to give us the desire to follow what we see in your word and hearts that want to obey. Lord, that's a blessing of the new covenant as we saw this morning in Sunday school. Lord, you have taken out a heart of stone and you put in a heart of flesh and have given us your Holy Spirit to do what we could never do in our own strength. I pray for anyone who's here who has not experienced that miracle of new birth that still has an old heart that you would do uh, that heart transplant that some of us, many of us have experienced, that you would take away their stony heart, their unresponsive dead heart, and replace it with one that is alive because you are all-powerful and can do that. So, Lord, we seek your face now in Christ's name. Amen. Our text for today calls us to give thanks, so it seems appropriate for the week of Thanksgiving. And it says we are to give thanks in everything or in all circumstances, which makes it appropriate for any week on the calendar. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we take a brief detour from the book of Romans to look at three instructions that God gives us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do we react to those verses? Do they sound insensitive in light of all the frustrations and struggles and heartaches of life? Doesn't Paul know that life is hard and people are hurting? Well, Paul is aware of what his original readers are going through. Just a brief walk through 1 Thessalonians. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 6. He says, You have become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. 
We sent Timothy, our brother, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one will be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. And then when Paul writes back to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So Paul knows life is not easy. He knows that people are suffering. And yet he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Well, do these instructions sound unrealistic? Like when the hygienist tells us we should floss every single day. We know she's right, but come on, that's, that just seems unreasonable. So is Paul expecting too much from us? My first reaction to these verses, especially Wednesday afternoon and Friday night, was am I a big hypocrite to come and stand in front of our church family and say these verses? Because I wasn't rejoicing and giving thanks on Wednesday afternoon and Thursday or Friday night. So whatever our initial reaction might be, we can't write these verses off as optional. Because Paul tells us that such responses are the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. So first of all, it is always God's will for us to rejoice. Verse 16 says rejoice always or rejoice evermore. Very similar to Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Now, if we think of rejoicing as having happy feelings about happy circumstances, then it would be unrealistic to be expected that we're always rejoicing. A lot of stuff in this life is the opposite of happy, and we are often discouraged, if not crushed, by our circumstances. So let's start with a definition. Webster's Dictionary says, Joy is delight caused by something or someone good or satisfying. Matthew Poole, writing in the 1600s, said, Joy is an affection in the soul springing up from the hope or possession of a suitable good. And since we're called to rejoice in the Lord, it would mean that we experience a delight in our souls because we possess the Lord, he's ours, and he is the all-satisfying good of our souls. So in Psalm 43, in a fight of faith against discouragement, if not despair, David calls the Lord, my exceeding joy. And the context of Psalm 42 and 43 is he's downcast, he's discouraged, He's having a rough go of it, and yet he says, God's my exceeding joy, literally the gladness of my joy. Our joy is in God, not in our circumstances. And therefore, our circumstances do not have to cancel out our rejoicing. Negative circumstances and rejoicing can coexist at the same time. And so let me show you some examples of that 
Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at the phrase in verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That same phrase, always rejoicing. But he's acknowledging there's a lot of sorrow. I have sorrow and I have joy at the same time. So we have to have a category for that. We're not unrealistic and just living in la-la land thinking, oh, everything's joyful. There is sorrow. This world is full of sorrow. Your life might be full of sorrow, and yet you can always be rejoicing in the sorrow. Or chapter 7, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. So there it is again. I'm in affliction. I'm not at a resort having a good time. I'm in the middle of affliction and I'm always rejoicing. Or chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So if you look at Maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see Macedonia has three main cities. There's Philippi, there's Berea, and there's Thessalonica. So he's talking about the church of Thessalonians when he says the church is in Macedonia. Verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. These young believers were not just going through an average amount of affliction, like we all do, it's trouble, pressure, stress, that's just life. They are going through a great ordeal of affliction. Ordeal means a severe test. And it's not just a severe test, it's a great severe test of affliction. So it's bad news. But instead of complaining, which might be how we might react, or being upset, why does life have to be so hard? They are responding in this very difficult situation with an abundance of joy. Another example, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting at verse... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, 
even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So do you see what he's doing there? He's being very realistic. You are being distressed by various trials right now. I get that. I'm not asking you to rejoice in that. I'm saying rejoice in the realities of verses 3 through 5. You've been born again. You have an inheritance heaven. You're going to be with God forever. He's keeping you till that day. There's enough blessing there to rejoice in, even if you are in the middle of distressing trials. And one more example would be Habakkuk or Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So even though all sources of food are going to be Gone. This is an agricultural society. They've got crops and they've got livestock. It's all taken away. There's nothing left. Economic meltdown. Life as they now know it is over. Habakkuk says, yet, in spite of all that, I will rejoice in the Lord. So Robert Asty was a man who lived through the fire of London and the Great Plague. He lost three of his children to death before he died at the ripe age of 39. And he wrote one book. So if you're going through that kind of life, been through the great fire, a lot of London just burned to the ground, great plague, just thousands of people dying all around you. Lost three, I did three of my kids' funerals. And now I'm going to die at 39. He didn't know that part yet, but so what, what, would you write about? What would be a book that you would choose to write? The book he wrote was called Rejoicing in the Lord Jesus in All Cases and Conditions. So he's definitely qualified to write about in all cases and in conditions. But you might not have seen the Rejoicing in the Lord before that. So here's the main point of his book. He says, spells it right out in the early pages. There is enough in Christ Jesus alone for the soul's full rejoicing and triumph in all cases and conditions. Let things go how they will in this world as to my outward concerns, yet the ground of my joy is never taken from me. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet my joy abides. The ground of my joy cannot be taken from me. It is not in the creature, it is not upon earth, but it is in heaven. It is not in man, it is in the Lord. It is not in the confluence of these things that are coming and going, but it is in the Lord who never fails." So it is always God's will for us to rejoice in the Lord. We will never find ourselves in any situation where rejoicing is not appropriate 
or not possible. Here's one more observation. Just this week, I was talking to a brother who told me he wished he had more consistent walk with the Lord. And I replied, don't just wish for it. Ask for it. And I shared James 4, 2. We have not because we ask not. So we don't want to just wish we had more joy. That's a good wish. It's a good goal. Let's ask God for more joy. So here's some examples of God's people asking for joy from God and then some examples of God answering that request and giving joy to his people. So go to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, verse 6. This is a prayer. And they're asking God, will you not yourself revive us again? Give us fresh life, fresh energy, fresh vitality. Won't you do that, Lord? Why? That your people may rejoice in you. So maybe your heart needs some reviving. And this verse says, it's okay to pray for God to revive you so that you will rejoice in him. Psalm 86, verse 4. Make glad the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I can't make my own soul glad. The circumstances aren't going to make my soul glad. But I'm asking you to make my soul glad, Lord. You can do it. Psalm 90, verse 14 and 15. Psalm 90, verse 14 and 15. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen Evil. So those are prayers asking God, give me more joy. And I'll also look at some examples of God answering that prayer. Psalm 92, verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. Or go back to the book of Ezra. Ezra, chapter 6. Verse 22, the first part of the verse. Ezra 6, 22. They observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Why? For the Lord had caused them to rejoice. They didn't just come up with their own joy. God caused them to rejoice. That's what we're asking for. God caused me to rejoice. Or Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. They have just dedicated the wall. It had been torn down in the siege by the Babylonians. It's been rebuilt under Nehemiah chapter 12, 43. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great Joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. God did that. God gave them joy. God caused them to rejoice. So 
If we're not rejoicing, we can ask for more joy and we can pray that God would cause us to rejoice. This is from Matthew Henry. It is our duty and privilege to rejoice in God and to rejoice in him always, at all times, in all conditions, even when we suffer for him or are afflicted by him. There is enough in God to furnish us with matter for joy, even in the worst circumstances on earth. Joy in God is a duty of great consequence in the Christian life, and Christians need to be again and again called to it. In other words, we need regular reminders, like 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Oh, that's right. <laughs> called to rejoice. I need help. I can't rejoice by myself. God, help me rejoice. Well, second, it is always God's will for us to pray. Verse 17 says, pray without ceasing, or similar to what Jesus said in Luke 18. Now, he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So the alternative is, I could lose heart, or I could keep praying. That's why Jesus tells the story about the widow and the judge, to keep you from being, uh, losing heart, keep you from fainting, keep you praying. Well, some people only pray in a time of crisis. Others pray at a mealtime or a bedtime, maybe in their quiet time. But this verse is saying pray at any and all times. It doesn't mean we close our eyes and bow our heads and pray nonstop 24-7. It means we're constantly going to prayer throughout the day as different needs come up. We keep looking to God for fresh supplies of grace. We keep asking God for wisdom and decisions that come up. We keep seeking his help and strength for the different needs of the day. So it's not that we do nothing but pray, is that we do nothing without prayer. That prayer would be more and more our default first response. So a couple weeks ago, I had a medical decision I needed to make. So I contacted Angela, said, what do, I, what do you think I should do? She said, we should pray about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. But you see the sequence? It wasn't pray first, and then let's talk to Angela. It's, let's talk to Angela. Let's figure this out together. Prayer wasn't even on the radar, which is pretty sad. Especially, well, I wasn't on that verse yet, so that was last, two weeks ago. So, I'm, and this is saying, pray without ceasing means, okay, Sowers, pray first and then call Angela. Pray first and then fill in the blank. Don't try to figure it out in your own wisdom. Talk to somebody else. Try to figure out something in your own strength. And when all that doesn't work, oh, that's right, I should probably ask God for help. Ask God for help first. And then it may be appropriate to use other means. So here's what John Piper said about the meaning of praying without ceasing. First, it means there is a spirit of dependence that should permeate all we do. This is very, the very spirit and essence of prayer. 
So even when we are not speaking consciously to God, there is a deep abiding dependence on him that is woven into the heart of faith. In that sense, we pray or have the spirit of prayer continuously. Second, praying without ceasing means praying repeatedly and often. I base this on the use of the word without ceasing in Romans 1.9, where Paul says, For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now we can be sure that Paul did not mention the Romans every minute of his prayers. He prayed about many other things. But he mentioned them over and over and often. So without ceasing doesn't mean that we verbally or mentally have to be speaking prayers every minute of the day. But we should pray over and over and often. And third, praying without ceasing means not to give up on prayer. Don't ever come to a point in your life where you cease to pray at all. Don't abandon the God of hope and say, there's no use praying. Go on praying. Don't ever cease. So it is always God's will for us to pray. There will never be a situation where prayer is not appropriate or possible. And you could always add, there's always going to be something to pray about. <laughs> We're never going to run out. In our own lives, or in our families, or for our church family, or our friends, or our neighbors, or our city, or our nation, or our world, there's always plenty to pray about. So you don't have to worry about running out of things to pray about. Third, it is always God's will to give thanks. Verse 18 says, in everything, give thanks, or in all circumstances. It's similar to what we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We do that continuously. Not just Thursday. Important to do it Thursday if you can. Not just Sundays when we come together in public worship. That's good too. But ongoing, continuously, and in all circumstances or all things. So how is that possible? This is what Jerry Bridges says. The time when we have difficulty accepting Paul's instructions to give thanks in all circumstances is when those circumstances are bad. That's kind of Captain Obvious, right? <laughs> of course it's hard to give thanks when circumstances are bad. The basis for giving thanks in the difficult circumstances is all that we have been learning about God. His sovereignty, wisdom, and love as they are brought to bear upon all the unexpected and sudden shifts and turns in our lives. In short... It is the firm belief that God is at work in all things, all our circumstances, for our good. It is the willingness to accept this truth from God's word and rely upon it without having to know just how he is working for our good. We are to give thanks in all things because we know that in all things God is at work for our good. So you see the connection? God's working all things for good, therefore you can give thanks in all things. If God wasn't working in all things, then it'd be very hard to give thanks in all things. Or shorter version by Leon Morris, when we see God's hand in all things, we can learn to give thanks in all things. So an example I've shared before is uh, Matthew Henry. He was robbed. 
So how do you give thanks in those circumstances? And here's how he did it. One, I was the one robbed. I'm thankful I was the one robbed and not the one who was the robber. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> Two, it was only a small amount of money. Three, it was only money that perishes. And four, I was protected from harm and I'm safe. So there's four things I can give thanks to God for, even though I just got robbed. So it's a mindset. It's not automatic. It's a mindset that sees all of life as under God's sovereign providence and that even a robbery or even some other negative circumstances, God's working for my good in this. And so I have something to give thanks to God for. So it is always God's will that we give thanks. We will never be in a situation where giving thanks is not appropriate or possible. Another text that might help prove helpful is Psalm 142. So I invite you to turn to that passage. Psalm 142. superscription, those words right above verse 1 tells this is a maskeel of David. A maskeel is instructive or teaching psalm, so this he's learned some things from this experience and he wants to pass on those lessons to others. So that's why this psalm is in the Bible to teach us some things David learned through it. When he was in the cave, a prayer. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, you have hidden a trap for me. And Lord, Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. So David is hiding in a cave either from Saul or from Absalom. He is in a dangerous situation. He's in trouble. No one even cares. No one cares for my soul. No one gives a rip. It's happening in my life right now. He says, I'm brought very low. He's feeling overwhelmed. He tells us that. So those are not circumstances that are conducive to thankfulness. So how can you give thanks at a time like that? So look again at his request in verse 7. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. So it's like he's saying my body is literally trapped inside this cave and I can't get out right now. 
And my soul feels like it's trapped too. It feels like my soul is stuck behind the bars of a prison cell with no way out. He says there's no escape. So I'm looking to you, Lord, to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Namely, set my soul free from its prison so that I may give thanks to your name. So see the relationship? I can't give thanks in this current situation. I do not feel like giving thanks in this situation. My soul's trapped in a prison. I won't be able to give you heartfelt thanks unless you intervene in such a way as to deliver my soul out of this prison so I can give you thanks. And we can pray that way too. We might have a rough week or longer. We might be in a rotten mood. We might feel like our soul is in a prison and we're just stuck. But instead of being content to let our soul stay there, which, again, that can be a thing, isn't it? I'm just going to wallow here in my self-pity and this, this is a rotten day and just, yeah, I do that and hope that circumstances kind of clear up and then I'll feel better. But this is saying we can ask God to bring our soul out of prison so that we can give thanks to God even in less than ideal circumstances. So just, again, true confession. I have a long way to go on that one. And maybe you do too. <laughs> so as we close, all we have said this morning presupposes you know God in a personal relationship through Christ. If you have not experienced the miracle of a new birth, it is literally impossible to follow these or any other commands in the Bible. And that's what Romans 8, verse 7 and 8 say. We read these verses in Sunday school. But let me read them again. Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. So we're not favorable toward God. We're not neutral toward God. We're hostile to God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot. Please God. So as you see the inability. Apart from the Holy Spirit being in us. Through the miracle of new birth. To do anything that's pleasing to God. We can't keep his commands. We don't want to keep his commands. We're unwilling and unable to follow what God calls us to do. Without a new heart. We are just rebels under the power of sin, as we saw last Sunday in Romans chapter 3, and therefore all under God's righteous condemnation. And if God is convicting you that you're not right with him, acknowledge, I'm not right in God's sight. I am guilty in God's sight. I have sinned against God in thought, word, deed, attitude, and motivation. I have failed to do what he calls me to do, things like rejoice and give thanks and pray, or love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, or love my neighbor myself, or all the other commands he gives, I fall, I fall short on all those. Not to mention all the things he says, thou shalt not, that I've done. So we're all guilty before a holy God, and there's nothing we can do to make up for that in our own strength or ability, including religious performance. And so we turn from being content with 
being sinful rebels. We turn to Jesus as the only one who can forgive our sin and restore us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So there's this substitution. We're the unjust. We're the sinners. He dies in our place. He's the righteous one. God looks on Christ and sees our sins put on him. Now he looks at us if we put our faith in him and sees us as righteous in Christ. We'll talk about that much more next Sunday when we go back to Romans 3. And then he rose from the dead to prove he is the one that God has sent to be the complete remedy for our complete ruin and sin. And he's also the only one, besides the only one who can forgive us and the only one who can change our hearts, he's the only one who can give us true joy and thankful hearts. <laughs> and for those who are trusting in Christ this morning, these verses remind us of our dependence on God's enabling grace. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Apart from the Lord, you cannot rejoice, you cannot pray, and you cannot give thanks. So we're dependent on his enabling grace to do what he calls us to do. And so here's some good news about that. Again, we shared in Sunday school this morning, Augustine said, command what you will and grant what you command. You command me to rejoice always and pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. Grant that. Give it to me as a gift. Work in me. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, including the instructions you see in 1 Thessalonians 5. Work it out. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. We sing a song that says, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all may see the strength to follow your commands, like rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, could never come from me. It's not going to happen if it depends on me. And so we need God to work in us to give us the desire and ability to obey 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 and everything else that we see in the Bible. And so we could pray, Lord, please work in me by the power of the Holy Spirit so that I become a more joyful, prayerful, thankful person. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there's no one in this room or listening online who could say, I pray as much as I should, or I'm as joyful or thankful as I could and should be. We all are falling short of what you call us to. So thank you that there's forgiveness with you, and there's grace to enable change in us from you. And so... Lord, I pray for your people, starting with myself. <laughs> Lord, make us more joyful, make us more prayerful, 
Make us more thankful than we are. Do you cause us to grow in all those areas? And I pray for those who don't even know you, who can't possibly do these or anything else that you've called us to do because they still have stony hearts. Lord, would you cause them to be born again by your mercy? Would you cause them to flee to Jesus for forgiveness and healing and restoration and all that is to be found in him? As this in his name, amen.